Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 179 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, riding solo today. No Ed, no Jeremy. But for our episode, I've interviewed York Tittle, creator of a new video game called The Last Worker. Uh, York and I get into uh, a lot of different stuff. The video game, the satire on Amazon that is its basis. Uh, we talk about gamification the media landscape. We get into a lot over this episode. Great. So strap in and we're just going to roll right into that right now. So we've had a lot of interesting people on the show to talk about their interesting work, but we've never featured a video game before on TMK. All, now, all three of the TMK boys, while, you know, they're not here with me right now, they're here in spirit. We're, we're all avid gamers, uh, and a video game does not get more TMK than the one that we're going to discuss today. Um, so I'm very pleased to be joined by Jorg Tittle, who is a graphic novel author, film producer and director, and now the creator of a new video game called The Last Worker, which is part social satire, part interactive narrative, part adventure game. Um, and in the game, players take on the role of Kirk, the last worker in an otherwise fully automated fulfillment center the size of Manhattan, which is operated by the company Jungle. Uh, a, a very clever stand-in for Amazon, and we'll we'll get in. Yorg and I will get into. There's a lot of really clever writing and 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 quips and and uh, and jabs in the in the game. But the last worker is scheduled to come out later this year on pretty much every platform. Though it's especially designed as a VR experience, um, and and there's a playable demo on Steam right now. So jump over, uh, play that. We'll also throw a link into the episode description for a 15-minute gameplay video that's really great. Um, but with all that said, York, thanks for coming on TMK to talk about the game. Well, thank you so much. I'm, you know, I'm super, super honored to be on this show, which has been, which has given me a lot of life and energy during not just this pandemic, but also the making of this game, because, you know, it's good to know that there are the people out there who are as passionate and uh, and opinionated about this insane world that we are finding ourselves in at the moment, um, and so that's 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 a real pleasure. And of course, uh, you know, uh, hello to the other guys, <laughs> and uh, um, but hopefully maybe we can pick up another conversation down the road um, together. But yeah, I mean the the, the demo by the time people uh, hear this episode might not be a demo anymore. So 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 because because it was time limited during Steam Next Fest, but the video will give people a good idea of what the game was, and um, and uh, and right now we're like in the final sort of stages of development and. God, this like release date later this year seems so freaking daunting. Hopefully, we'll make it. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you guys are—it's an indie game. It's a—it's a small studio. You were telling me that you're like, you know, deep in the beta testing, so you're just writing notes and notes and notes on the game, trying to get it out. And and you know, I mean, anybody who is like even slightly into gaming or aware of the video game industry knows that it is um, absolutely like plagued by uh, you know by delays, but also really awful labor conditions around you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, crashing and all of that. Um, uh, I'm sure 
like since you're not working at a major studio, hopefully you're not uh, under uh, you know under the gun like that. But that no. that's another episode. We can abs- we can absolutely get into it. That would be awesome. I'd love to talk about labor conditions in the game industry. Uh, you know, I used to work for Activision, which, by the way, oh my god. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll talk about the 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 devil. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean Bo- uh, Bobby the Hutt, as I like to call him. But uh, yeah, we can uh, the Cotic. But uh, we could talk about him another point. Another point. Um, yeah, and 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 uh, and maybe put a lot of uh, allegedly's and and just joking in there because <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> it's all satire, yeah. just like this game. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, you're all resemblance, uh, etc. Right? Uh, completely accidental. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, let's let's get into the game then. Uh, I I had no idea that you were a listener to TMK, uh, and and I mean definitely appreciate you listening. But I definitely saw um, a lot of crossover uh, in in terms of interest and approach um, in. in the in the last worker's story and the the kind of critique that you're laying out i think it's a really interesting way to do this kind of critique and you know we we do see social satire in games um but i I still think it's pretty rare to see a game like to see it be so full-throated uh so upfront and so well developed i think in a lot of games it tends to be something of an afterthought or just an occasional kind of like you know oh look we're we're satirizing late capitalism in cyberpunk 2077 or something like that right but i feel like your game is really taking you know that's like the origin of the game and then around that you built um, uh, actually a really beautiful and, and well-designed and well-made game, which is also really refreshing as well. The gameplay didn't take, and the design didn't take a backseat to the message. But maybe we'll get into it top to bottom, but maybe let's start with the kind of ideas and the story behind The Last Worker. Yeah, I mean, I it was like a good decade ago or more, uh, I think, when I, when I walked into like a sort of local Sainsbury's or Tesco, whatever the supermarket thing was, chain was. And and, I, and it was just around the corner from, from our flat in, uh, in London. And, um, and, uh, and I saw that sort of over, literally overnight, the employees there, uh, whom I, some of them I knew by name, uh, had been replaced by these sort of self-checkout tills, you know. And there's one of them was left, one of the humans left behind one of the sort of counters, the one remaining counter. And the other one was standing sort of already depressed and sort of like a deer caught in headlights next to those machines, waiting for them to break down so they could push the restart button, you know, and watch Windows reboot, whatever. <laughs> and like, this is fucked up. It's like we, we're supposed to have robots to assist us rather than be assisting the robots. This is not. <laughs> This is not the right dynamic, and and and, I, and this was happening. I mean, this was almost like a sort of uh, uh, stealth mission. I mean, the fact that this happened overnight—it was like a pop-up store, but in, in this case, like they popped their employees' heads off, and and it was just—it just didn't feel right. And then I was starting to see this everywhere and uh, in society, and you know, uh, uh, whether it's with the rise of Uber, you know, which. President Macron is really proud to have helped. I love that one. That was a nice headline the other day to do whatever they did. And, you know, all the burning cars in the streets and shit. He's proud of that as well. Nice. Cool. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so, so I mean, seeing all of this has been was intense. And then it was a few years later that I saw a sort of BBC documentary, um, a panorama episode called The Truth Behind the Click, which was, uh, which I think people can find on YouTube. And it's quite an, it was one of the first times where people were talking about the urine bottles and the, and the sort of horrible working conditions and, and the sort of, and how gamified that whole environment was. How these people have these little scanners and they walk around, spend 10 miles on foot every day on concrete and metal with no natural light. And they have this little fucking device that goes beep, 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 beep. Mm-hmm. And has, you, you have to meet, meet a little quota. And if you don't, it starts beeping so loud and all the other employees around you know that you're fucking up. And then, and then, and then they will report you because you're really taking them out of their zone or whatever. I mean, it's just insane, right? So I thought I need to make a game about this because I mean, they've beaten us to it. They've gamified this dystopia, right? Already internally. And um, how can I turn it to something that will hopefully make people understand that every time they buy a product, there's this sort of messed up dystopian running man type of game happening you know, behind closed doors, you know? And so that was the roots of it really. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think you're right. Uh, and, and, you know, you're, you're, you're especially dead on in the kind of gamification aspect of it. I mean, that's something that, you know, I, I know it was a big topic of discussion and analysis back in like 2013, 2014. Like I, uh, I like I was in grad school back then. And I, I remember like I, uh, co-authored a kind of critical paper about like the morality of, of of gamification and the and the gamification of morality kind of stuff around especially because around you know at that time there were a lot of big like consultants as well that were talking about gamification is is going to be the next big wave in uh, behavioral engineering and behavioral management for companies it's how you're gonna build uh, your Cons- uh, consumer relationships between brands and consumers. It's how you're going to get your workers to work harder without knowing that they're working harder. It's how you're going to get your consumers to work harder without knowing that they're working hard for you. Um, it was a big thing. And I feel like it just, it, the discourse around it kind of fell off but not because it went away. It just kind of became this like normal thing. It, it stopped being a, a new trend um, on the tip of everybody's tongue, uh, 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 you know, and instead it just kind of rolled into the normal business as usual. And then people kind of ignored it. And then, you know, it was at the height of like, you know, the Zynga games as well, the kind of like Farmville type stuff. And, and, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking as well of a of a media theorist and game designer, a designer Ian Bogost, who you know got really well known for his cow clicker game around that time as well. That was kind of a a a, a one man uh, band kind of social satire of um, gamification and the constant clicking in Farmville and stuff like that. Um, how how are you kind of bringing in some of that? The gamification elements that are are that are in practice by capital, um, uh, but bringing that into a kind of gameplay uh, environment. Well, yeah, it's it's we have the, we have the day to day work that Kurt has to do working for this fulfillment center in which he's been employed, at which he's been employed for over twenty five years, and 
And over the years, all of his colleagues have made mistakes, which have led them have led to them being fired. And he's the only one who's been absolutely perfect. So, uh, of course, and uh, so this puts a little bit of pressure of you on you as a player because you're expected to be amazing from the start. But uh, but you've got yeah, you have you have boxes that you have to get to in time. There's a time ticker. There is you have to sort of. Uh, Figure out whether there might be defective, or there might be the wrong weight, or the or, or 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 the wrong size for what's expected on them. And then you have to take them either to a dispatch point or recycling point. Um, you can tag them as damaged and all sorts of other stuff. So there's this sort of this sort of nonsense job, which technically um, a robot really should only be doing, probably. Um, but you're clinging on with uh, onto with pride. And so, I mean, that's that's another layer to it. It's like, do we really want these fucking jobs? I don't know. Um, you know, right now, there's hundreds of thousands, potentially, people who are doing this kind of fucked up job uh, because we've all become so lazy um, that we can't even, like, walk two blocks to buy a product anymore. Um, and, and so we just expect, you know, these people to work in sort of slave-like conditions. Um, and uh, in, in, in order to deliver us our goddamn toothbrush overnight, it's it's insane. So it's like so. Well, that's that's the sort of day to day. But then there's a group of activists that sort of contacts you and uh, and wants to recruit you from the outside in order to try and help and uh, dismantle this corporation from the inside. And at that point, you have to weigh your day to day with your activist missions without getting fired because if you get fired early, then uh, then you won't be able to perform your tasks for them. And also, you have the moral conflict of whether you, you want, want to risk your job for them or not. So it's uh, so it gets more and more complex as it continues. Yeah, you raise a lot of points there as well. I mean, there there absolutely is. You know, I mean, you know, my my boy Marx talked about this. You know, um, a, a couple hundred years ago, the kind of commodity fetishism, right? And then also the alienation, uh, of, you know, labor alienation. Those two things are are two sides of the same coin. You know, and that we are alienated from our labor and the the value that our labor produces, but we then, in return, we fetishize the commodity, right? So we don't think about all of the work and resources and the logistics and the labor and all the stuff that goes into um, this thing that's in our hand, that toothbrush, right? That comes to us uh, with same day shipping. Um, we. Uh, fetishize that commodity in the sense of we only see the commodity as a thing in and of itself. We don't see um, all of the stuff that went into the the you know mining from mining the resources to refining the materials to producing it to packaging it to shipping it. We don't see any of that, and that's by design, right? And I mean that's what um, you know all companies under capitalism have really benefited from, but it's especially something that. Uh, the you know the the kind of companies like Amazon or like Jungle in the game you know really thrive on is that like these things are um, you know they're fulfilling our our preferences our desires what's the slogan in Jungle right it's like uh, you're delivering dreams right every box is a is a delivered dream um, and one I think it's been really interesting to watch just over the last couple years, um, this kind of like consciousness rising about, um, the, like the, the labor conditions and the, the kind of logistics networks that are required to get those things from Amazon. It, you know, I feel like most people are 
pretty aware of that. And and now they have to make a choice, you know, if they continue using it, which to be fair, a lot of people do because they don't have any other option because like all the other options have been gutted and have been monopolized and have been, you know, shut out of the market. So people literally have no choice. And so it's just like, well, now it's a double-edged sword. Now I know how shitty this is and I have no choice but to use it, right? Yeah, what's extraordinary as well is like uh, these things are happening at the same time as we are all facing this global sort of climate, you know, catastrophe and uh, that seems to be completely unstoppable at this point. And to just think that, you know, everyone is getting this nonsense delivered to them, like to their own doorstep, like literally like the, the, the inefficiency of this thing is insane. Like when you we used to have shops and you move your ass or get someone else to move their ass to go to the shop and pick this thing up, the shop would be getting 20, 30 units in one box delivered to them by one large truck. It would take that, drop the stuff off, that's it. We all now have individual little tiny things packaged into larger boxes with fucking wrapping around the thing, dropped off. I mean, it, from a purely ecological point of view, it's insane, right? It's insane this is kind of allowed, isn't it? Because... I mean, if we're trying to minimize packaging, if you have an individual product packaged in a larger box with all the shit around it, that's clearly creating quite a lot of pollution. And so, and then for it to be individually, you know, carted to you with a guy in a scooter and sort of whatever, I mean, whatever it is, it's just nuts. Um, and wh why, where are politicians? Where are regulators? Why is this not being looked at? I don't know. I, I, it's maddening because, you know, and then, I mean, I live in the UK where we've just done Brexit where the most important thing is to have a trade deal with Australia. And I was like, fucking Australia is at the <laughs> other side of the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I, I, I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> 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 I, it makes me actually think of another game um, uh, that was extremely prescient uh, is Death Stranding. Right. So uh, Hideo Kojima's game that came out in the middle of the pandemic, which seemed to be about the pandemic, right, where it's often called a walking simulator, which I've also seen your game called uh, in some uh, by, uh, in some ways as well, a kind of walking simulator. But it is it is actually quite interesting to to look at a game like Death Stranding where you kind of take on the role of, you know, whereas Kurt's the guy in the warehouse, uh, Death Stranding, you're playing the guy delivering the stuff, right? Yes. Um, and, that, and that's the whole point of the game is, uh, you know, it's this kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland and you are um, delivering things that people want, you know, uh, you know, things like magazines, right? Or things that they really need, like medicine. Um, but either way, you're delivering things to their bunker um, where, or their house or whatever. Uh, and a lot of the game is just like, you know, having to walk over like tough terrain and deal with like, uh, you know, ghosts and, and enemies and things like that. Like, um, but a lot of the game is very tedious and very repetitive because it's like trying to actually simulate, um, this, this kind of mode of 
labor in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I, I mean, I find that really interesting. And, you know, Hideo Kojima, obviously, uh, a, a really well known and visionary game designer. Um, and, and it was interesting to see that kind of come out during the pandemic. Uh, when everybody was like, oh, so this is a game simulating my life right now during the pandemic. Um, but it, like, I think one of the things that games like that and games like The Last Worker do that are not necessarily, that are using the kind of gamified elements, are using like gameplay mechanics that we're familiar with. You know, there are, there are puzzles, there are kind of, you know, things that are, a, a, a game language that we're familiar with, but they're using it to, um, I, I think, like just put a slightly different perspective on something that many of us do every single day. Um, whether even if it's not literally working in a warehouse or literally delivering stuff, most of our jobs also uh, are, are largely based on extremely tedious, repetitive, redundant, uh, mindless activities. I mean, we've all been working. We've all been working in a fulfillment center for the last couple of years. I mean, because we've had to fulfill our own lives and jobs, etc., by working from home. So actually, we've all transformed. And like Kurt in the game lives at work. I mean, he lives in the fulfillment center, and he hasn't left it in twenty five years. Um, so, uh, and technically, that's how I felt for the last couple of years. And we started working on the game before the pandemic started as well. I mean, and it was it was just sort of weird to suddenly feel like Kurt uh, all the time. And also, at some point, I stopped shaving or even cutting my hair because, you know, and I started fucking looking like the guy, not to mention completely out of shape. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's it's been uh, interesting. I mean, with Kojima, it's interesting. I wonder if he's a big fan of The Postman, the Kevin Costner movie. Uh, I imagine so. I mean, he's a huge pop culture, just like yeah. addict. He loves pop culture um, and and, use, and works it into all of his games. Yes, there's this line. I, I, I've done a couple of projects with uh, Olivia Williams, the lovely, amazing actress. And uh, and she she worked, she was in The Postman. And there's this one line that she says in it. And I once asked her, like, how could you deliver that with a straight face? And she's like, it was tough. It was tough. It was, the line is, you hand out hope like it's candy from your pocket. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a slogan uh, from from Jungle. Oh, Jungle, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of what you were describing with you know, you know in the game um, when you're playing as Kurt are things like you know actual activities that you might have to do in a warehouse. Have you thought about the possibility that you are um, unwittingly training an AI <laughs> to the, to do, or all of us by playing the game are training an AI that will then uh, better do the kinds of things and actualize the world that you're satirizing. Well, that's always the problem. I mean, if you take a look at uh, Metropolis, you know, it was one of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. It was one of Hitler's favorite movies, right? Um, <laughs> and hey, <laughs> he's like, oh, this is lovely architecture. This looks like really attractive. Yeah, so why does human relationships work? It's really beautiful. I mean, 
it's 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 insane uh, actually to think of it. Uh, and then speaking of uh, them, um, to to they've gamified the world before us. I mean, they were the first fuckers to do it. To be fair, um, like if you take a look at um, the the labeling, the tagging, the armbands. Mm-hmm. Then the, it was everyone was put into categories that that it, it looked the whole all of Germany was turned into a board game actually like Brenda Romero now but she was back then called Brenda Braithwaite um, did this amazing she's a game designer uh, now married to John Romero and uh, and she uh, back in the day did this game called Train I don't know if you've heard of this uh, project uh, where she it was a board game where it was just you have little trains and you have those little, these yellow peon humans and you put them in there and you have to basically like get these humans from one station to another and stuff. And you pull out cards as you continue playing it and you gradually realize that you're part of the Nazi machine and you are actually transporting all these people to concentration camps. And, and when she was doing this and playing this with people, most people continued playing, 99% of them, and, and they wanted to win and be the best at moving people into those camps. And, and that's what society right now feels like. We are all being blind, blindly, we're following these fucking automated patterns with very little, you know, agency of our own. Um, and uh, I think I'm going off on a tangent because I don't remember what you asked me. But uh, <laughs> No, I, I think it's a good point, though. It is a good point is that, I mean, this is one of the things that the management consultants um, who were you know, con- t- constantly talking about gamification like 10 years ago would talk about is that if you can use gamification mechanics to get people on a track and, to, and people want to win, we're conditioned to be competitive to want to be the best, to want to win, um, and and if you can gain, if you can use gamification mechanics to make people compete against each other, um, they will work harder um, than they would uh, on their own because they now have an ex- external motivation. And then if you can use gamification to get people on a specific track uh, of action or or momentum, they'll keep going. On that track, um, because they want to get more points, they want to level up, they want to be the best, they want to get to the next stage, right? All of that, it, you know, what you're bringing up with like the the train game. Um, I think what you bring, what what your game Last Worker does as well, because it's not as if Kurt is like this uh, really, um, you know, dis- discontent worker in this, you know, Manhattan-sized warehouse. Yo, he, there's a reason why he's been there for over 25 years and is the last person remaining to never have been fired, unlike everybody else, is because he's just kind of like he's in a routine, he's in a habit, he doesn't mind, it's fine, right? Like, uh, yo, he's doing his job. I think there's there's always this kind of fine line um, between how these gamification mechanics can be used for fun, for entertainment. I mean, right before we got on this call, I was playing a video game, right? I play a lot of games and I put, I put, I put many, many hours into games. It's what I do most evenings to just relax and unwind. And I love it. Right. What um, did you play? I like, uh, well, right now I'm playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. 
great. I, I've already beat Elden Ring, uh, you know, a couple times, like all of that. You know, I, but it's great. Like I get into a zone. Um, I, I usually listen to podcasts and play video games for a couple hours in the evening, and it's great. Um, but it would also, but it's also very easy to turn something that is like really entertaining, really relaxing into something that is really, uh, you know, that is doing labor for somebody else or something that is just like truly evil, but in that kind of like banal, right? The banality yes, of no, evil but, kind but of we're way. All, we're all part of it. I mean, if we're, we, we all blindly order from Amazon, we're part of the game. I mean, it's, and the way you order the stuff with this sort of, one-armed bandit mechanics on their phones. What are the deals? Like, oh, look, I got a good deal. I mean, it's like, it's, it's mad. It's maddening. I mean, we're, 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 everything is a lottery. Everything is a loot box. You know, I mean, we, people to keep talking about wanting to ban loot boxes in games uh, legally. Sure. Uh, but can we just fucking ban them in the real world? Because literally the entire economy is a loot box. The, our, our entire stock market is a loot box. The whole thing is fucking nuts. You know, the whole concept of everything money related at the moment is a fucking loot box. Like, why why are they allowed to play lottery with our lives, right? But but we're not allowed to have them inside our fucking games where at least we're nowhere playing one, right? <laughs> so it's 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 um it's a strange one. But you were talking about like them potentially copying it's really funny, uh like from alert or copying our 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 robots or the way it works in our game. I, I now remember the question you asked me earlier. And it's like, it's funny because I was at PAX East, which is this big game convention in Boston in April. And, and, uh, and I actually had a robot follow me around um, with the Last Worker logo on it. It was de designed by Piaggio, uh, fast forward, you know, Piaggio, the Vespa company, the scooter company. So they have a mm. robotics division. But this one is actually kind of a pleasant one because it follows you around and it carries your stuff. So, so, uh, and that's all it does. It doesn't have any other external AI stuff. It doesn't connect to any social networks, any of this crap. It's just your little thing that follows you around. It's really kind of cute. But, but I thought, you know, so of course it was a showstopper because people would be like, oh, what the fuck is this thing? And, um, and it was just made a couple of blocks away from, because it was, it was a bunch of, I get, imagine former MIT people designing this robot, um, in Boston. At some point, there's this this lady that walks up um, to to my robot. It's just this kind of thing that I usually loathe when I walk my dog. It's like when someone walks up to your dog and just pets your dog, but never makes eye contact with you and goes like, <laughs> "Oh, you go, you go, go," and then just walks away. And you'd be like, "What the fuck was that?" You know what I mean? This dog is always with me. Like, yeah, can you ask for like permission? I mean, it's not like I own the dog. I mean, it's a creature of its own. But you don't just get to fucking fondle my dog and not, at least like acknowledge that I'm next to it. Anyway, so. So she did that with my robot, and uh, I felt quite protective of my little robot uh, dog there. And um, and uh, and she's looking at it, so like, like studying its underside and whatever. And I'm like, "You okay there?" And she goes like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Just I really just I'm into robots." I'm like, "Oh yeah, cool. Like, do you know much about them?" Well, yeah, I designed them. Cool, cool. Where do you work? It's like Amazon Robotics. Like, no <laughs> shit. What do you do there? It's like I design the robots in the fulfillment centers. I'm like, you must be fucking kidding me. No, no, we're just a block away from the from this convention center. I'm like, <laughs> can you come and play my game? Yeah, so they can get some ideas. Oh, this looks actually really great. We should start implementing some of this. <laughs> well, she played the game and she said, it's crazy how accurate accurately it captures what it feels like <laughs> to work at fucking Amazon. And I'm like, are you allowed to even say that? It's like, well, opinions are my own, right? Um, okay. 
And, uh, and, and I said, it's so funny because when I, we heard, we read this internal paper, I found this internal paper from Amazon where they're apparently struggling to make their robots work in six directions, which is, the, which is why they're all sort of floor-based still and they just pick up a thing and move a sh- But we're, we have robots flying in six directions, right? They go up and down, collision detection, avoidance, all this kind of stuff everywhere. And it's like, she's like, yeah, it's really impressive how you guys did that. Oh, fuck, you're not suggesting you're going to be doing that yourself. Well, obviously, eventually in the future, Right. It's like, ah, shit. So, so yeah, I mean, in a way, entertainment and satire, unfortunately, you know, as we saw with Dr. Strangelove as well, I mean, he was, you know, he had predicted a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, near nuclear disasters and the political dynamics that happened behind the scenes with his film. He did that in a, in the satire, but he was dead serious. And, uh, mm. and I'm dead serious with this game. I just like to make people laugh because the world is so fucking depressing right now. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to be all serious and earnest about it, you know, I, 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 I you know, I, what's the point? Yeah. It's, uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that you had, you know, obviously making a game takes a very long time and you've been working on this since before the pandemic. Um, I, I wonder, did anything in the game change in part, you know, during the pandemic because of, you know, trying to take that into account in the narrative and the writing and design of the game. But also it was during the the last few years during the pandemic and kind of, you know, leading up to, but really popped off during the pandemic that there was so, that there has been so much kind of general consciousness raising in terms of like critical understanding of the labor conditions at Amazon, that Amazon is this like, you, you know, like evil company. Um, and, and tied to that as well was all of the campaigns around unionizing, um, at Amazon that if this game had come out a few years ago, and I imagine when you were conceptualizing the game, it, I, I feel like there would be like, you know, these much bigger hurdles that you would have to jump in a lot of people's mind to really convince them that, that this is not just a like totally fantastical untethered to reality um, dystopia, but is in many ways just a aesthetically a dystopia while um, you know, functionally reality, right? Uh, like, do, do you think that that, that, that kind of hurdle in people's minds has, has lowered um, for you during the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. It was the hardest. I first had the idea for the game probably like 2014, 15. I, and I know for sure that the, the title at the latest would have come to me in 2016 because that's when I reserved the Twitter handle. So I, so the, <laughs> at the last worker, you know, it was like 2016. So I know it's been that, it's been around since then in my, in my head. And then I started, I tried to put different teams together and to get the money for the thing was impossible. I mean, it's like to get, you know, uh, publishers to, to to believe in it and whatever. And I mean, I had never made a game uh, officially. I, I, there was a couple of publishers that started it and whatever, long stories. But I I'd, I'd worked as an employee at Activision, but it was not my own title um, as a young game designer, but it was not my own game. And so people, that was... I'm sure a factor, but also like, it's a crazy concept. It's not a game with traditional gameplay mechanics. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's satirical in tone. It's, uh, it's narrative driven. It's visually really quite complex, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And people just didn't probably didn't believe that I could pull it off. I don't know. Um, but also they just didn't feel like, why is this relevant? You know? Um, and it was, 
And really, over the last few, now people are starting to say this is the most topical game of the year. You know, some people at PAX were saying, like, this is, like, everything. Like, yesterday I was talking to a Guardian journalist who just contact me, contacted me out of the blue, and she says, like, this is a game that's speaking to me, and it actually genuinely has something to say, but it's also really fun, and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, shit, cool, okay, like, people are picking up on this, and this is not our campaign or anything doing this. I think this is just people sort of organically sort of finding out about it at the moment. And so, yeah, it is, it is zeitgeisty now, I guess. Um, mm. It's something you can never plan for. Uh, you know, I made a feature film with my wife, uh, Alex, uh, a few years ago. We shot it in 2015. It was called The White King. And it was with Jonathan Price and Greta Skaki and, and uh, uh, Fiona Shaw and other people. And it was based on a Hungarian novel called The White King, which was by Georgi Dragoman, who his his uh, his book was rooted in the sort of 80s uh, in Romania. But we took it to a near future sort of dystopia behind closed, you know, and a sort of country and a made up dictatorship behind closed borders and um, that we called the homeland. And and so we set the whole movie in that we created this weird sort of multicultural country, but it was filmed in Hungary. Um, so it was all very disconcerting visually and everything else. And, and it was all told through the eyes of a boy. And we were filming this in 2015 in Hungary. Uh, and right. And we started planning the film, like planning the shoot as we were there, right as the, as Orban was starting to build those fucking walls uh, to, to keep the Syrian refugees out. And I'm like, Jesus, like, this is not fun. Like, we're making a film that's really depressing conceptually to begin with, right? Because dr- that was a drama. There was nothing funny about it. Sci-fi drama. And, and, and then we're fucking living in this. We're in this now. It's happening. It's actually happening. And then when the film, and then when we were at Edinburgh Film Festival premiering the film, uh, Jonathan Price goes up on stage. And this was three days before the referendum, Brexit referendum vote. And Jonathan Price goes on stage, and if we're not careful, then three days from now, like instead of the t- dictator standing on the mountain, like in the film, like the big statue, we're going to have Nigel Farage lifting a pint. And three days later, there he was, Nigel Farage, drinking that fucking pint and lifting it. And then when the film came out in cinemas, don't, literally that same day, Donald Trump got inaugurated. And I was like... <laughs> This sucks. Like I, 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 can, I can, I will never, ever make a depressing dystopia again that comes true. So at least let I'm going to make people laugh, right, uh, with it. Because yeah, I think the world is dark and fucked up. Yes, I, I do think it is. As artists, it's our duty to draw attention to what's happening around us. You know, hold up a distant mirror to the world. You know, that's what you guys do with TMK as well. But at the same time, I need to entertain, as you guys are as well. What 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 makes your show a, a joy to listen to is that you do it with a sense of humor, because otherwise, you just want to shoot yourself in the face. <laughs> this this is true. This is true. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, you do have to. You you. It, it's required. You have to. You have to have that sense of humor, and you have to have a sense of hope as well. It's like I said. You know, it, I, I I said this on a very recent episode. Um, you know, it was a, 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 I think it was a, a a Patreon episode. But I said, you know, we were talking about this kind of this aspect of like 
hope versus hopelessness. And it's like, you know, as critical as we are and as, as, as sober of an analysis that we try to have about all this while also having a sense of humor about it. Like, yeah, if you didn't have that humor, if you didn't have some element of hope that like things could be different, things could change because they should, um, then yeah, I'd be, I, I, I said on that episode, I would just like walk out in, in the street and die. Right. Like, you know, that's like, yeah, you can't have that like totally humorless, totally hopeless um, approach to to these things, to these very deadly serious things, um, because yeah, it's just it's no way to live and it's no way to confront them as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I find that I've found find sort of uh, intensely depressing about what's happened to entertainment, at least on the film side of things is actually Christopher Nolan's rise and his influence on cinema. The idea of making films that have, like conceptually at least, satirical ideas behind them, but they are told in such a humorless, gray way that they cease being entertaining, but they are at the same time bombastic enough where they seem like they're entertaining. And ultimately, they are but not about nothing. I mean, like the Dark Knight movie, for instance, uh, is impressive. And of course, you know, there's a lot to be. I mean, I, I admire the execution of it, right? But but the idea, I think, whatever the sequel was called with with Kermit the Kermit the Frog voice or whatever you had, the guy with the mask <laughs> with, with Bane, <laughs> Tom Hardy mumbling into the thing there. Yes, so. <laughs> So, you know, the fact that there was a group of activists in that or some sort of that blow up uh, football stadium and they're terrorists, they're portrayed as terrorists. And that that film was shot in New York at the time of the sort of protests that were happening for what was it called? The um, help me, the the the, the movement of uh, protests that had like R- R- Zuccotti Park, uh, and Occupy Wall Street. Yes, Occupy Wall Street, right? And remember how they they were all being gassed, tear gassed, and made to yeah. leave. While this movie, which was portraying activists as terrorists, had the an entire bridge blocked off for it in order to be filmed on it. Like one of the main arteries into New York was completely inaccessible for a whole fucking day or two, right? And that was cool. So this film that's spreading this anti-activist, anti-progressive message, not doing it overtly because ultimately it has nothing to say other than isn't it cool that activists are terrorists? That's it. I mean, I think that's about the fucking depth you have to this piece of filmmaking. <laughs> so so there's there's so there's there's been a lot of this happening in entertainment. And at the same time, the joy has been sucked out of superhero nonsense. I mean, Batman is a fascist character, but he also is supposed to be funny at it. You know, I mean, you're supposed to be able to laugh at the fact that this billionaire is taking justice in his own hand and also being a complete fuck up on a personal level, right? That's interesting. But this has none of that satire. It has none mm-hmm. of that humor in it. He's being portrayed as a hero. It's so I think we've lost the plot as society right now. I mean, we're not, we're in a dark place. 
You're 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 coming you're coming after DC and Marvel right now. I can see the red dot from the Disney snipers um, on 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 both of our foreheads right at this moment. I don't give a fuck. But I, <laughs> it's funny because I wrote a graphic novel in 2014. It was actually Boston Globe Book of the Year called Ricky Rouse Has a Gun, which is set in a Chinese knockoff Disneyland, which is taken hostage by American terrorists and in ripoff mascot outfits, and so. Yeah, I've started that fight a long time ago. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think we are, you know, we have a lot of corporate players and I'm I'm sick of living in the world of branded entertainment, you know. It's bullshit. Well, we've got we've got a trend here now um, because you know our, our friend of the show, um, past guest, and and um, surely future guest Corey Doctora, you know, famously wrote "Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom," right? So so now we've got uh, a trend of, uh, of 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 Disney satire, um, of uh, Amazon satire. <laughs> it's it's great. I mean, we got to take shots. We got we got you know. I, I think we need a multitude of, just as we need a, a variety of, of tactics, we also need a variety of approaches to our, our ways of understanding and criticizing and satirizing and analyzing um, these kinds of systems. You know, I, I, I do want to get into some of the production aspects of the game as well. Um, but before we get into that, I, you know, I have a thought um, whizzing around in my mind. I'm going to try to get out, but you know, uh, I, I think there is really something interesting uh, in the way that we tend to not recognize or want to accept um, situations or conditions as dystopian unless they have the aesthetics of dystopia, right? A place has to look post-apocalyptic or cyberpunk or, you know, whatever other kind of visual language we understand as dystopian. It has to be devoid of humans and humanity for us to be like, aha, yes, that's clearly a dystopia. Um, you know, even if a situation is socially, politically, eco- economically dystopian, we it, it, like we need to be aesthetically and culturally dystopian to to make that recognition, and I, I think that might be starting to change now because of just how obviously shitty things have gotten. Um, but as like, look how far we had to come before most people are like, well, yeah, duh, obviously we live in a dystopia. Um, and when I look at the world of the last worker. You know, even though the art is extremely colorful, cell shading, you know, the the Jungle warehouse immediately reads as obviously dystopian, even though there's parts of Kurt's job that are actually far less bad than the actual labor conditions in many Amazon warehouses around the world. I mean, you know, Kurt has his uh, his handy Jungle uh, gun, uh, which is like a tractor beam, right? So he's not doing any heavy lifting himself. Uh, he's got a floating chair that can move in any direction. So he's not walking miles upon miles on concrete. Um, and even the robots seem to largely ignore him, right? Except for the the stock keeping unit or skew robot that mostly just follows him around and makes funny quips, right? But like, so he's not being micromanaged to death by these same algorithmic and gamified systems. And there's even, as you mentioned, there's a militant activist group um, that comes up later in the game. Uh, who are trying to take Jungle down from the inside with Kurt's help. I mean, I fucking wish that we had a militant Luddite activist group trying to take Amazon down from the inside. Uh, so it's like, it's, uh, I think it's instructive to 
draw these comparisons between the the art and media and stories that we code as dystopian and really actually compare them to our current material conditions and say is it better is it any different right because like there's also this subtext of dystopia means fiction right like i i get this a lot i'm sure you will get this a lot with your game is i get painted as a dystopian thinker or i'm 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 just merely you know i'm a a a, a doomsayer i just you know uh, the 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 adjective dystopian is maybe the most commonly used adjective to describe my work the things i write the things we say on this podcast and so on and i feel like for a lot of people there's a subtext there that it's fictional right that we are somehow painting something that is not real that we're extrapolating in ways that are fantastical um even though everything we talk about is stuff that's already happening and oftentimes stuff that has been happening for a very long time so i i i i think on top of all of this like you know your game is another example of the ways i think we really need to rethink dystopia um in terms of like what does dystopia mean and if the if our reality is in fact uh dystopian in all the ways um and sometimes worse ways than the media that we see as dystopia doesn't that mean we should do something about it right like doesn't that mean that well i i i think i think compared to the dystopia that we live in um the game that i'm portraying is actually utopian because at least it's fun and entertaining <laughs> because there's nothing fun and entertaining about the actual real dystopia that we're living in so maybe um maybe indeed it's we're living in a dystopia and my game is fucking real which because because at least it's drawing your attention to real problems whereas our dystopia is distracting us from them um and so what what is more real and and perhaps like fucking Elon Musk with his theory that we're all living in a simulation well he's turned it into one these assholes are he's justifying his own dystopian methods and methodology of turning everything into binary constructs of you're with me and if you're not with me you're against me i'm going to fucking call you a pedo guy i'm going to shoot you down i'm going to fucking give you twins whatever the fuck else he may does in order to just you know you know control everyone and everything around him um he's a dystopian ass motherfucker right <laughs> and we uh uh and i'm just trying to escape into a reality uh that isn't of his making uh and of their making in order to actually be able to digest this dystopia that they've built for us <laughs> I wrote an essay, uh, uh, I, I guess, at the beginning of this year. I, I can't recall. <laughs> but it's in Real Life Magazine, and it's called Future Schlock. And it is all about this idea uh, of, like, what does it 
what does what do real utopias look like but also on the flip side what do real dystopias look like and i think you're exactly right as well in terms of the way that you say that like the last worker in some regards is utopian because I, I think the current world as it exists is for some people a utopia, right? Like, you know, uh, our dystopia, what we perceive of as dystopian is by the same measure perceived of as utopian by Jeff Bezos, uh, or by, you know, Andy Jassy, the now CEO of Amazon, right? Like, you know, the, it's, it's always the dystopia and utopia are just matters of positionality in the same reality, you know, at the end of the day. We, before we run out of time, I do want to talk about some of the pro the, the actual fun production uh, as and design aspects of the game as well. Um, I mean, this is great. Uh, you know, we we also on TMK love sci-fi. Uh, this has been a, you. Know, we've done many episodes talking about science fiction, so these are all things that we love to talk about, theorize about, but. Um, like I said, it's not often that we have uh, a, a game creator on. Uh, your game has a. It's not only a, a social satire in the sense of like it's you know it's a it's a written sharp funny game and all that, but it is also really well performed and it's really well designed. So tell us a little bit. I mean, this was one of the striking things actually when I was watching. When I was watching the gameplay video, I happened to have on my nice uh, over-the-ear like can headphones, like really good quality headphones, um, and I was really struck by uh, the voice actor uh, uh, doing Kurt, the you know the main character whose voice you hear because he talks uh, a lot, right? Um, and I was struck at how just like beautiful and pleasant this like deep baritone resonant voices i was like man this, all right i'm already in a good mood because i want to hear this guy talk uh just constantly i want to hear him read and say everything in my life and i i and there's a lot of other great kind of elements like that in the game this is not just a um something that you threw together in your garage like there is a lot of really great talent um, behind the game. So can you talk a little bit about that element of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so in terms of the the cast, uh, so the, the main actor, the guy playing Kurt is is possibly the greatest actor in Iceland, a guy called Olafur Dari Olafsson, um, who, uh, who's just an incredible actor and, and you will have seen him in, in Ben Stiller's film, several of them, and True Detective and The Meg. Um, <laughs> he's in The Meg! Um, <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, he's just, uh, a dear friend and, uh, and an incredible actor. He actually is, he just finished filming a feature that I'm producing, which my wife is directing with John Malkovich and others in Poland called a winter's journey, which we're doing with Sony pictures, classics and with PlayStation, but it's another story. Hmm. Um, but it's, uh, so he's wonderful and yeah, and he's, uh, and he's a gamer as well, actually. Um, uh, and and so with him, I recorded shitloads of dialogue during this pandemic. I mean, uh, multiple sessions. Um, and then Skew, the, you know, the stock keeping unit sort of companion bot who you might have noticed in the playthrough has two different voices in it or two different accents. Uh, it's both are played by Jason Isaacs, who you might know from Harry Potter, um, for instance, and from uh, the death of Stalin, where he played General Zhukov and and Star Trek um, Discovery, etc. 
so he's a formidable actor. So I've had record over 80 pages of dialogue with him. And all, and the reason uh, there's, there's um, Zelda Williams, uh, who's incredible, Robin's daughter, she happens to be, and she's you know known from like Legends of Korra and other things, Claire Hope Asherty from Children of Men and other things, David Hewlett, The Shape of Water and Stargate, and, and hey, Tommy Earl Jenkins, who is Die Hard Man in Death Stranded. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, an amazing cast. But I made a point of, and I think hopefully, while while these while the dialogue feels so warm and human, because because that's the thing that was so important to me is that for everything to have a human touch, I'm showing a profoundly dehumanizing world. But I want it to feel handcrafted, handmade, performed by real actors with heart, because the only way that we can fucking combat this nonsense is to actually make something that doesn't feel like product but something that actually has passion poured into it. And um, and so I've had, like, because the pandemic uh, both limited us, but also enabled this project to be made the way it was, because in traditional times, so to speak, before this pandemic, well, I would have had to sort of somehow find a way to get an actor into a studio, fly to LA to record one person there, another one separately there, you know, the expense of it, whatever. And here it was like, we were all stuck in our bedrooms. So at some point, but Dari was actually filming in Australia. He was in Adelaide. Uh, he was doing a Zack Snyder project there. And and so, and I had to record him because Jason Isaacs was only available for that particular week or whatever. Um, for So I had Jason in a studio in London. We all wearing masks and stuff, or he did because he had to act. And then Dari in Adelaide on a Zoom call, seven and a half hours apart, you know, and they were jamming with each other. And so all the scenes where characters are talking to each other in a game are all recorded in the same Zoom room. <laughs> okay. Um, which is even AAA games, like, don't do this. You know, they act, yeah. they record all these actors separately, which is why everything always sounds so stiff, etc. And I just wanted to, this to feel alive. And so so the actors are really acting together and it, and it became a really familial atmosphere uh, very quickly. So yeah, I'm quite proud of that. I will say I was actually wondering that because in noticing the, the dialogue, it did seem uh, natural, right? It, se it didn't seem like separate audio streams, uh, you know, recorded at separate times and places then stitched together. It seemed like an actual conversation um like i noticed that it, it was it really came across i think this is really important as well considering how much of a narrative driven game it is there's a lot of dialogue right like it is an interactive storytelling um that's happening as long so, as well so there's a lot of a lot of dialogue that's happening while you're doing stuff while you're doing puzzles or or kind of the you know the task of uh kurt's job and things like that um, which, you know, I love as someone who plays video games and listens to podcasts at the same time. This is, this is my ideal flow zone. Um, but I think it's really crucial that, uh, that, that, that the way that story is told is, uh, is, is well told, right? Uh, and I think that really comes across. Well, that's, that's an important bit. I mean, thank you. I mean, that's an important bit. Like, I also wanted to, like, uh, if you saw the opening title animation, which has no words whatsoever, and it's completely told just visually, to me, it's also very important to know when to shut up, right? And and to allow a story to tell itself and for the player to be able to fill it in and sort of, uh, and, and read between the pixels, right? Um, but uh, but also, like, being able to do this and being able to, get to tell, make a game that tells itself while you're playing it and doesn't stop the gameplay while it's telling the story with you, through you, 
uh, 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 to you is also you have to work with an incredible team of designers and programmers and animators because, and we're moving in six directions. I mean, you're essentially on a flying mobility scooter in this game, right? And so, um, so how do we draw the, att- the player's attention? How do we make sure that they go, you know, and continue the narrative or also doing their tasks, etc. cetera. Um, and so like the team I'm working with and, and the creative director of the team, Ryan Bousfield and his team at Wolf and Wood, they're absolute pioneers, especially in the world of VR so far, even though my, our game is coming out for VR and for flat screens, whatever you call the non-VR games these days. Um, and working with with Ryan has been an absolute godsend because he's, uh, you know, he made the Exorcist VR game. Uh, he made a game called A Chair in a Room, Greenwater. He's made a really awesome game called Hotel R&R as well for PlayStation VR and, uh, and PC VR platforms. And um, so working with them has been incredible because it's, it's, it's making games is hard. Making games in VR and flat is insane. Like making a game where it moves in all directions and tells you a story is nigh impossible. Making a game that is not a fucking walking simulator or even flying simulator purely, but actually has all of this interaction, all these physics, all that stuff you can do with the environment. You know, later on in the game, you can do the stealth mechanics, hacking tools. There's even a bit of light combat and other things that's happening in the game. There's so much that we're doing, and we're just a team of nine, you know, f- uh, nine full-time is nuts. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, the production has been, it's been tough. It's been a challenge, but we're all friends, and we're all positive, and we're all plugging away, and we're all loving it, you know? Um, and hopefully you can do that. Yeah, no, I think that really, really comes across. Um, well, so the game comes out later this year. You're hoping for an October release, but either way, uh, people should definitely keep their eyes open for this. I, I think this will be one that whether you're a, a hardcore gamer like, uh, you know, some of us, or if you're just a more, or just more casual and you actually are more into the kind of like, you know, interactive storytelling elements, you know, either way, whatever spectrum, I think if you're a TMK listener, uh, this game will be of interest to you. Um, I did also get a lot of, I'll just throw out another kind of reference that was in my mind while, uh, while, while looking at the game. Uh, yeah, I was, I was getting a lot of, of vibes from another indie classic of Portal, um, you know, from the, the kind of, the, the, the aesthetic of it, the art design, the gameplay, the kind of, uh, the sardonic robot who pushes you along through the story, right? And, and so I think if you can even approximate like a fraction of the, uh, uh, of the, the, the user base and, and love that, that a game like Portal um, garnered, then then it'd be a huge success. And and I think the last worker is definitely um, definitely deserves to to get that kind of attention. So um, th- this has been really great, York, to to talk to you. Uh, is there anything else that you would um, want to plug, or just uh, that we didn't get to uh, mention before before we let you go? Well, Jason, thank you so much. It really is means a lot uh, coming from you because it's you're not just a hardcore gamer, but you're also a hardcore thinker uh, and you're passionate and opinionated about all sorts of things. So to be on your radar or something that isn't shit is means a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't just mean in terms of quality, but also but also morally and uh, intellectually. You know, there's, you can find out more about the game at thelastworker.com. Follow it at thelastworker 
or follow me at at new j-o-r-g new york whatever um just do that maybe and then we'll see you all on twitter and continue it on there but hopefully down the road we can we can chat about other things bigger things and just continue talking because you, you guys rock Great. Awesome. Well, we'll have links to all that in the episode description. Um, and you can, of course, as always, find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for another premium episode every single week. Uh, so find us there um, and we will see y'all in the jungle later. later, later.